Some of us may know of a famous basketball player named Kobe Bryant. And one of the things that Kobe Bryant was well known for was his great skill in basketball. And he himself would say that he strived to become the greatest basketball player that ever lived. But because of that goal that he had, he had to live a certain way. He had to live differently. In fact, he, had, he came hours earlier to practice, uh, and then he would stay hours later after practice and try to outwork his teammates. He would try to work hard so that he could achieve that greatness. All of his life, you could say, was dedicated around that goal. Well, you and I, all of us here, you and I, we're, we're meant for something more. We're all called to achieve and, and strive for something great. But what that greatness is, is not found in this world. All of us are called for something great, and that greatness is heaven. All of us are called to achieve the glory of heaven. Now, this end for which we strive for requires the dedication and truly the sacrifice of our entire life. And while striving for it, while greatness, as we see in, in Kobe Bryant and others uh, in the world, can be a desire that all of us can share, all of us can have within our own hearts, we know that there's also other human longings and desires that we have. Perhaps for rest, recreation, for love, for friendship. And all of these longings we have can only be satisfied in heaven. The Catechism teaches us that only in God will mankind find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. And this is because, as we all know, we are made by God and for God. God who lives and reigns in heaven. And so because we are meant to strive for heaven, for that's the place we find the deepest fulfillment of our longings and desires, we were reminded of three things today. Is that one, that the passing things of this world cannot satisfy us. That two, only heaven what is eternal truly satisfies. And three, to inherit heaven, we must exchange our whole life for God's. So we start with the first point, is that the passing things of this world cannot satisfy us. Now we can observe, right, in our life that there are many things that give us consolation and make us feel good, that give us joy. Some of this can be classified as uh, natural and supernatural. For example, natural, we could find delight and joy in having a good piece of chocolate cake, or maybe some cheesecake. Uh, for some of us, right, we find some great rest and relaxation in a peaceful morning, or looking at the sunrise or sunset. For others, we find great joy and relaxation or peace and, and friendship and fulfillment in those. So there's some ways we should have natural consolation, but also there's supernatural. That in our prayer with the Lord, we experience this profound peace, this profound love and joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. And so both of these consolations and joys, they are foretastes to us of heaven, of the, a little bit, a little idea of what it is that awaits us in heaven, the joys and happiness that lies in there. However, the problem is that both are limited. The first is limited because they won't last forever, the natural consolations. And the supernatural is because we can only experience its fullness in heaven. We're only getting a small taste of it. But especially regarding the first set of consolations, the things in the temporal world, right, these pathing things, 
think a lot of us can be tempted to place all our, our bets, all our happiness in the things of this world. We might place all our security and have it rest solely on our wealth and riches, on the enjoyment and pleasure and food and drink, perhaps in the success of our sports team or in our own personal successes in business and careers. But if we see King Solomon, another figure, a famous figure, who we see authored our first reading, he too enjoyed a lot of temporal success, enjoyed a lot of the riches that come in this world. Some of us, a lot of us can be tempted to seek after solely. And yet, despite of the great temporal success and wealth that King Solomon had, he despaired of it. And he despaired of it because he saw how death renders all of it vain. King Solomon's one that uh, also was uh, the one that wrote Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes in Scripture. One of the things that says a lot that King Solomon says is when he looks to the world is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And if you look at the word, uh, Hebrew word of vanity that's translated from vanity, concretely, it means mist, vapor, a mere breath. So in other words, when Solomon would look into the world with success, he would say, vapor of vapors, mist of mist, mere breath of mere breath. That everything in this world is passing just like water vapor. That just as it comes to an appearance and existence, it disappears. And therefore, because of that, he, met, he realizes that nothing that he has access to naturally on this earth will fulfill him. Because either it or himself will pass away. I think that's a reminder for all of us that none of the deepest longing of our human hearts can ultimately be satisfied in this world since all is passing, all is vanity of vanities. That brings me to my second point. That's only heaven, that which is eternal, that alone can truly satisfy us. Again, if we look to our first reading, See that King Solomon is composing a prayer, a prayer asking and seeking for wisdom. And he's teaching other kings and monarchs to do the same. And why is he asking for wisdom? Because he says the wisdom leads to a kingdom. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God. See, he explains saying that wisdom begins with a desire to know God's law and it leads to a love of his law and to keep it. And there he says, keeping the commandments of God leads to the assurance of immortality. And immortality brings one close to God. And then he says and finishes that wisdom leads to a kingdom. And so the reason why he's asking him to seek after wisdom, because through wisdom brings that which lasts forever, brings immortality, and it brings an eternal kingdom, which is what is worth striving for. And that kingdom, again, he clarifies a few chapters later, is none other than the eternal kingdom of God. And so fast forward into the New Testament, what do we hear Jesus himself proclaiming as he began his public ministry? But repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes as the answer to all our prayer for this wisdom that leads to mortality. 
For Jesus himself is wisdom incarnate. It is he that shows us the way to the Father. He that fulfills all the commandments and the laws and the prophet of, the, of Moses and the prophets. And he reveals to us the eternal kingdom of heaven, that alone which can truly satisfy. See, the Catechism teaches us that heaven is the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings. It is the state of supreme happiness, of definitive happiness. The Catechism also continues saying that heaven is the perfect life with the most holy trinity. And here we're entering into very holy and sacred ground. That heaven is a place of communion, of life and love with the Trinity, with the Virgin Mary, the angels, and all the blessed in heaven. And yet, despite all of our language, all, all, all of our knowledge of how great and unimaginable heaven is, the church also says that the mystery of blessed communion with God and all who are in, in Christ is beyond all understanding and description. The scripture speaks of it in images, life, light, peace, a wedding feast, the wine of the kingdom, the father's house, paradise, the heavenly Jerusalem. And yet despite of all of the descriptions, it says that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Truly, the joy that awaits us is beyond human comprehension. It is inconceivable. And it is knowing that, right, that we could turn to some of the testimony of the saints who themselves have experienced some visions of heaven. And knowing that their vision of heaven description always falls short of what it truly is like, still we can get a glimpse of that joy of reward of that truly satisfies us, we are longing for. For example, St. Faustina will mention this in her vision of heaven. She says, I saw how all the creatures give ceaseless praise and glory to God. I saw how great is happiness is in God, which spreads to all creatures, making them happy. And then all the glory and praise which springs from this happiness returns to its source. And they enter into the depths of God contemplating the inner life of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, whom they will never comprehend or fathom. She continues, this source of happiness is unchanging in its essence, but it is always new, gushing forth happiness for all creatures. Now I understand what St. Paul who said, eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. And in fact, it is seeing this vision of heaven that she begins to have pity for those who don't believe in heaven. She makes a prayer of God to God saying, oh my God, how I pity those people who do not believe in eternal life. How I pray for them that a ray of mercy would envelop them too, and that God would clasp them to his fatherly bosom. Brothers and sisters, truly, we cannot imagine the great joy that awaits us, but is, it that, but is that happiness and joy in heaven that we've been given access to that is deepest longing of our hearts. 
something that we cannot find in this created world. The thing is, it requires the dedication of our entire life. Again, just in the beginning of the example, just how Kobe Bryant, for example, was seeking for greatness to get dedicated his life to basketball and honing his craft. So all of us in search for a great reward of heaven, how all the more are we called to give of our entire life for such a goal? And that leads to the third point. It's that the only way to inherit heaven is to give a great exchange of our life for God's life. And we see this in the scriptures in the gospel today where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And here hatred doesn't mean the malice or the emotion, rather Hebrew idiom, because translated as such. Unless you love Jesus more than your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even your own life, you cannot be his disciple. Jesus demands even more. He says, unless you're willing to pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And remember that the cross was a, a way of a use of punishment. The Roman Empire would use it to humiliate criminals and those who had posed the Roman Empire and humiliate them and shame them and make it used as a point and saying, this is what happens to all who oppose Rome. And yet Jesus is saying, unless you pick up your cross and are willing to die for me and follow me where I go, you cannot be my disciple. And then he ends uh, by saying, unless you renounce all your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. See, that incorporates all of our life because God demands our everything. God deserves our everything, but even more so, it's because God wants us to give us everything because he wants to give all that belongs to him. You see, Jesus has taken upon himself, right? Our humanity, our sins, our condemnation, our debt, and the consequence of that, which is death. Jesus came coming down from heaven, took what it belongs to us so that in dying and rising with him, he can give to him, to us, all that belongs to him, the innumerable riches of heaven, the great family of blessedness with the saints, the love and the peace that comes in communion with God. And so truly, what it is that we have to offer in exchange for what God gives to us is incomparable. And why not give everything for the great joy that awaits us? In fact, I just end with this, uh, with this simple image. I know some of us might look onto the internet. Now I like to look on YouTube sometimes. And there's this video where a person uh, go, approaches random people and says, if you give me $5, I'll give you whatever is in this bag. And the people who, who are approached say, no thanks. But there's always one person who does take the risk and gamble. And so they exchange the $5 and they get the bag, they open it and there's $500. And so they're all excited, they're all surprised, and like, oh my gosh, like, I wasn't expecting this. Well, in, a, some, in some ways, right, our life and everything we're called to give is like those $5. Incomparable with the 500 that Jesus gives. But actually, let me clarify further, is that it's not just $500 that God's given us in exchange for five. It's 500 times a million, times a million, times a trillion to infinity. It's something of immeasurable worth. And there is no risk or gamble when we give those $5 of our life, of our possessions of everything to God. 
There's no risk because God has given us a sure promise of heaven for what comes if we follow him. And so, brothers and sisters, let us remember what awaits us. And let us never grow fear or timid of giving our life to God. For what he gives us in exchange is truly beyond comprehension and the ultimate longing fulfillment of our desires.